Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Setting the Standard. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Here on the show every week, we're going to be sitting down to chat with a diamond setter to hear their stories, tips, tricks, and a little bit about how they look at diamond setting. I hope you're able to find some value in the things we discuss. And so without further ado, we're going to get right into it. Today, we've got a fantastic episode with Pat Daco of Atelier Daco in Toronto, Canada. There is some small sounds from one of the mics. The discussion was great, so I hope you'll like it. All right, so welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me today. Brilliant, man. I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. So without sort of further ado, I'm just going to sort of jump into this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, a little bit about your business? So I essentially started the business. I was apprenticing at another like big workshop in Toronto. And I wasn't really getting taught the stuff I was supposed to as I was apprenticing for a year. So eventually I just got frustrated enough that I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go off on my own. So that's generally kind of how running my own business started. Okay. Yeah. And essentially I started by going to Jura's for five days of training, which, you know, with travel and all that kind of stuff is quite expensive from Canada to Europe and then staying there for about a week, you know, with food and all and, and, oh, absolutely. and, all that. and when <laughs> I spoke to Jura first, he told me, you know, don't, don't learn anything, you know, don't, don't touch the tools. Don't like try to figure out how it works. <laughs> don't watch YouTubes. And I was like, <laughs> I was really nervous. Cause I was like, Man, like you want me to travel across the world, convince my parents, my dad has a PhD and I'm going into trade, which is like, you know, unheard of. He's like, what? You're not going to university? And essentially you want me to do nothing, like to prepare, I'm to do nothing. So I, you know, eventually I, I guess I drummed up the courage to pay and like go across the world to try this out for five days. It was extremely stressful, like, especially the first three days. Like, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I've never sat under a microscope. I've never touched a, at the time he was using, I guess he built an art graver, but the handpiece was a Lindsay style. I recall you those know? old ones. Yeah. So, and it was really difficult because the Lindsay style has this like very light flutter to it. So it yeah, actually an shakes idol, very right? lightly. Yeah. And so, you know, for... One, it moving as you're trying to like put it on a piece of metal and stuff like that. It's really hard. <laughs> so, but anyways, it was a great class. I met this guy, Peter, who is from London as well. It's the UK, I mean, forget where he works from, but it was two of us and it was an insane five days. And then I came back and I essentially got a job in the summer at this place. And that's how kind of like it unfolded. Like I was like, going to jewelry school at George Brown. Yeah, essentially, like, from the first year into the second and developing that skill of micro pave and microscopic diamond setting, like I just kept pushing forward, I guess. So and then therefore my business, right, it started as a setter. Now we're more of like a private workshop that does business to business and business to customer work. So, so how... that's kind of where we are now. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. One of the questions I was kind of wanting to ask specifically, like you're saying you were apprenticing and you I guess probably weren't doing too much setting. Like what made you specifically want to focus on, you know, micro pave or micro setting? And then what specifically drove you to the Euro as well? So to answer the first question was I was apprenticing and I say apprenticing, but really I was just like looking over a guy's shoulder that was like 
cleaning, polishing, and assembling like pieces in the trade downtown. Yeah. And I asked him, I was like, you know, what is a skill? Because whenever I think of like doing well at something, I also think of, hey, you know, what is a skill that is sought after and people kind of try not to do it, right? And one of the things that like at George Brown, I noticed was a lot of people would try setting work. And then after, you know, the first two, three months of like trying it out, they're like, eh, you know, it's, I don't want to do it. You know, it's like not my thing. It's nerve wracking, right? Mm-hmm. So the guy basically told me, he's like, if you can learn how to set with a microscope, it's in demand in Toronto. There's guys that do it. And there's only like a few guys that do it pretty well. And the rest of the guys are stuck in the old school way of just, you know, setting with a visor. So he said, do that. You know, like if, if you really want to know something that's like, that's sought after and in demand is like good micro setting is something that's like really sought after. So I started Googling (laughs) and I asked uh, a ton of people in Toronto, like, Hey, will you teach me? Everybody said no. Yeah. I went down that same path. I literally, I I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I asked everybody, I, anybody I heard that was like a good setter, decent, you know, like they're wonderful, you know, any kind of, referral that I could muster up to get of an intro to somebody or hear about anyone. Like I went and bothered them. Like I was like, Hey man, like I'm super interested in this. And everybody basically said no. So like I spent the first eight months in school coming to downtown Toronto and asking people and just like, no, 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 just constantly. And eventually I was just like, okay, well, you know, I called the Jura and, you know, and he's kind of like Russian old school you know, uh, yes, when you pick uh, when he picks up the phone <laughs> and, you know, obviously his photography is out of the world, especially when Absolutely. you think like seven years ago, you're like, dude, that's impressive work. Yeah. You know, you're thinking sure. like, how does somebody almost, almost like robotically pull out this kind of level of like perfection? And everybody I talked to was like, oh, that's just renderings. Like, that's not real. That's not right. Like, you know, that's not, he's not really making this stuff. It's just, it's fake. And now in my own like intuition, I was like, I don't think so. Like, there's just something about it. I just don't think that is like fake. There's something about the way the prongs work and just the way he's, you know, placing the stones. Like in my head, my intuition was like, that's not fake. So eventually I just, I convinced my parents to let me to go. And with the amount of money spent, they're like, that's like a year of university. (laughs) That's crazy for five days. But, you know, I went and it was honestly one of the best five days ever. Like just getting my butt kicked. Like you don't see many places that demand that level of just like super delicate, but super fine, straight work, like understanding symmetry and how to constantly correct it, you know, because we're human right? Like I'm left-handed, you might be right-handed, right? There's all this stuff that we need to constantly fight against that like our Mm -hmm. bodies just naturally do the way we sit. And you just have to always, you know, use your eyes to like tell your brain how to adjust for that thing you do to like fight it. Yeah. Right. So no matter what somebody looks at, right, they go, well, I can't tell if he's left or right-handed because like, it's just symmetrical. It's left side, right? Like it's the same, right? Which makes it really cool. Like if you start looking at somebody's work, you know, that's what makes it kind of interesting because then you start looking at it and you're like, what are the telltale signs that, you know, like Ian did it? Like, what's the personality trait here that makes it Ian's work or like MC's, you know, or mine? 
you know, which I find really cool. I do too. I absolutely yeah. do too. I was actually just talking to that to a colleague today. We were specifically talking about castle setting and just the way some people do cleanup cuts on the side. And it's just like very recognizable. Sometimes, yeah. you know, sometimes, of course, it's very similar. But yeah, that's one of my favorite things as well is just how, you know, within sort of the idea of secure stones, there's still like a lot of room as well for, you know, artistic sort of creativity. You can make each setting your own, even like the simpler settings. There's still yeah. room for for playing with that. And I really like that about it. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Let me segue on to there. Do you have any tips for building up a trade business? Because from my understanding, you did not have like family from the industry at all? No, no, no. I'm first generation, just like, you know, my parents are immigrants to Canada, showed up with like two suitcases, you know, had to go and like they lived in Iraq for two years to get passports. And then like it was a whole journey here. Right. Yeah. So that's awesome. Trade work. The truth is, is you have to show off, right? Like it's like a resume. There's a thing where people are like, oh, you know, like pride. It's like, oh, you can't be too proud. You can't have an ego. But to me, I'm like, you know, if you're young and you really are doing nice work, you have no choice because your work, your example, your sample you have from classes, you make something for fun because you're experimenting and it comes out really well. Like you have no choice but to be like, look how awesome I did this. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, is, you know, people will be like, oh, well, you know, a lot of setters in Toronto, I found like they never had samples. Like when I started, you're like, oh, like, why is he good? Well, people say he's good. <laughs> okay, great. You know, but one thing I actually started doing when I was earlier on is I would have these samples of like my three-sided work, my fishtailing. Yep. And I would show it to people, especially people older. And if they didn't loop it, like, I was like, whatever price I'm about to say to you, like, doesn't make sense to you. You're going to think it's too much because you looked at it and you didn't, like, inspect the intricacy of what was done, right? So to me, I was like, how do I put a price on something that somebody's just like, you know, they, they look at it and, yeah, it looks nice. Yeah. When, like, we discussed a second ago, it's like that artisanal, the work the intense amount of focus that you put into stuff for like eight hours, like it speaks to something, right? Like people Absolutely, don't just, yeah. not use, you know, they use microscopes and stuff for a reason. If they weren't necessary, sure. we wouldn't be doing it. We wouldn't be buying two to $6,000 microscopes <laughs> that aid in, in our work. We'd be like, oh, I'd rather just spend my money on better stuff. Than I want to do. Yeah. And so that's the thing. I think a lot of people, it's like, if you're proud and, and you're humble enough to look at your work and go, wow, that actually came out awesome, show it to people. If you so, want trade work, show it to people. So did you go knocking down doors with this stuff or did you, was this through Instagram so or websites? Like no, no, no. So I used to. That's how I started was I was literally going to like anybody that I was fortunate enough that like, because I was buying all these tools and experimenting with them. Like I had some stores that sold tools. They got to know my quality of work. And they're yeah. like, hey, man, listen, I saw your stuff. It's great. You know, you should go talk to this guy. You should go talk to this guy. Gotcha. And it's networking as well. You know, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And because I worked at like that company back in the day, like that was manufacturing, I had a little bit of reputation that, you know, I was there doing nice work. So as a result, when I left, like, it's like, hey, he was there for a while. You know, he wouldn't be sticking around if he sucked. Right. So there's that also. 
Yeah. You know, like if you work somewhere that has a bit of a rep of doing nice stuff and you went in there and you did nice stuff and you stayed around for a bit, you know, it, it, it helps good. also. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So that actually sort of leads into something else I wanted to talk about because I'm also a very similar opinion and not just sort of for trade work, but also, you know, to make sales to consumers as well is when you do the type of, you know, the style of work at the level that you're doing it, you know, you can't, you can't even show it to, especially can't show it to a consumer without them looping it. And even, even then when they loop it, I think it's very, it's very hard to explain the difference. So I wanted to talk about, about photography because obviously your photography game is crazy. And then if I recall, you went to Europe for photography as well. Yeah, so I did my second course with Jura, and actually I did a custom one on the third time I went over. So I have had three trips with Jura, and one of the third trip was I was really interested in understanding like random size pavé work, or people call it snow pavé, yeah. I think is like a term that people are using. And essentially I was like, how do I learn to do this? And one, make no mistakes. And two, you know, leave no space. Like, how do I really play? Like, I essentially told them, I was like, I want to sit in, let's say I take a plate of brass or or copper and I'm drilling it out. Like, how do I do a Jura style? Like, what does your day look like messing with this? Right? Because I was like, you know, for me to just, you know, shove a 1.3, shove a 1.1 then and then a 1.5. Like, I go, you know, most people could just do this at home without traveling anywhere to learn this, right? They could just mess around. But I was essentially like, how do I learn to do this at a level where I am messing with quarter-sized stones? Like, hey, uh, this 1.3 fits, this 1.5 is actually a 1.525. And right in between the 1.1, it's not really a 1.1, it's a 1.15, because that's what I can fit in there. And it doesn't interrupt the next row, doesn't interrupt the left and right, So like, how do I spend a day doing this kind of stuff and like understand, (laughs) because one of the most important things I found with Jura's work, it was never about just being like, I go there, I learn the information and then I leave and I go, okay, so that was my training. And then I just do it. And then I get jobs and I do it. To me, it became a, it's about a process, right? Because a process allows you to control, right? And if you can control the outcome, if the outcome isn't what you wanted, right? The the outcome becomes something that is now you can change because you're like, oh, because I did this thing, now I can change outcome because I'm going to try this other thing that I think will about like now start affecting my my final product. Mm-hmm. So you can mess with that stuff. But if you know if you're just setting stuff and you're like, oh, well, I do fishtails because I cut this and this, but you know you don't realize like there's a process to symmetry in that as well. You know, you'll never get better, right? Because they'll just stay the way that they are. Yeah. So with the photography side of things, I essentially on that third trip, I said, you know what? I've got to do it because I'm getting more custom work. But because like I don't have, you know, I don't have my second generation, third generation of jewelers in my family. I don't have any startup. Like I don't have $200,000 to sit and go, hey, I'm going to buy 10 chains. I'm going to buy, you know, all these rings and put them in a showcase. So I get an opportunity to perform and do the best work I can for this client. And it's super important to me. But once it leaves, it's gone. (laughs) Right? Like 
how do I show somebody like, hey, like I'm really as good as I say I am. <laughs> yeah. Believe me and give me your money, right? Like people are going to be like, nah, that sounds like anybody I talk to, right? So yeah, for sure. Uh, essentially, I said I needed to start doing the photography side of things because I was like, I'm finishing pieces. I'm making, starting to really get lucky where people are like, hey, like you've been doing this for a bit. I trust you now to make me something, but then they're leaving and then I have nothing to kind of show for it in a way. Sure. And so with that being said, a high school friend of mine, after I did it and kind of like learned that technique yeah. and kind of like a baseline, my friend, his name is Arthur and he, or Stefan, depending how you know him, he uses both names, but he essentially, what I did was like, listen, this is my baseline, but you love doing this stuff. Come and, you know, do this stuff for me. Like I will pay you when I can, you know, that kind of stuff. It's your hobby. You like to do this. And then we started really messing around with it, like how to get better lighting, how to this, how to control this outcome. And then you're taking a photo of a ring and it's like a three hour setup, you know? <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, yeah. we're a little better than that. So like he's not working till 4 a.m. <laughs> There's been days where we were in the office till 3.30 a.m., 4 a.m. to get like the perfect shots and then like go home. And then it's like we got to wake back up at eight. You know, it's it's been crazy. But <laughs> that's amazing. That's what it took, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so now I kind of let him do his thing. I try to, you know, when I can help out with newer equipment, better cameras, you know, uh, better lenses, better lighting, all that kind of stuff that we need to really capture what we can, essentially, right? Yeah. So we should move on. But I just, before we do, I'd love to hear what camera and lens are you shooting with? Because I'm a bit of a camera guy myself, and I really, I'm not near your level, but I'm into so it. So we recently just upgraded to an R5. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we were, honestly, we were shooting on, I believe the old camera was literally, I think, 14 or 16 megapixels. Like, wow, that was everything we were doing <clears throat> until January this year. Like, legit. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And we had a... I forget the name. It's the, you know, Canon L red band macro lens. You know, they're like 1100 yeah. a 1000 bucks. You know, they're pretty yeah, expensive. Yeah, the old one, the 100 millimeter macro. Yeah, the L. Yeah, exactly. 100 mil macro is basically what I would tell people. Like, it's kind of a must. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've got, well, I don't have the L series. I got the other one, but it's a, both, they're both great lenses. Yeah. So we use a different, I, to be honest, I forget, but we use a different one for video, which we try to shoot a little further back. And try not to get so in the face of stuff for oh, video. Yeah. More depth of field probably as well. Yeah. But basically like our general setup is turntable in a light box, yeah. macro lens with now like a much better camera body. But mm -hmm. honestly, before like we weren't shooting with anything, nothing crazy, right? Like cool. so if somebody saw our old photography, they wouldn't really know much of a difference. Like one of the biggest upgrades yeah. for the R5 honestly is the video. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. You're shooting in 4K, 120 or 120 FPS, you know, that kind of stuff. I think you can do 8K and 30 FPS if you really want to. And that's actually something I wanted to mention here before we go to is basically, you know, like you can definitely do some great camera work with some cheaper bodies. And anybody who hasn't seen any of your photography work, I definitely recommend you dig back through, through Taco's profile. It's incredible. Yeah, honestly, if you take a look at our older stuff. It's like, I think we used something that was in the range of eight to 12 megapixels in the beginning, six, Wild. five years ago. 
At some point, we did do an upgrade to something that was under 18, if not 18 max. And yeah, mm -hmm. now we have an R5, but you know, it took us quite a long time to see a necessity to want to do that, really. Like that's yeah. that's one of the biggest things. It's like, do we need it? And that's like Arthur's technical knowledge there at that point. He's like, listen, we can spend, you know, six grand on a camera body, but once I send you the photos, like you'll be like, that's the same. Like it's still nice, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, let's move on from that. Tell me, what is the worst job you've ever worked on? Now, I'm not saying the worst job you've ever done, but like, you know, is there a, something that you just remember being a nightmare? And then tell me what your absolute like favorite, or your most expensive job, like let us know the two of those if you can. So one of the most nerve wracking, it was a pretty easy job because I was just requested to set a three star ring, but I set this like internally flawless natural blue with two natural reds on the side not my favorite taste for color and like in a ring but to see stones like that and they're worth so much money at them. you know what are they worth like you don't even know right it's so expensive oh, but it's, it's so nerve-wracking to you're like i'm in charge of this for like the next six hours <laughs> yeah and you know you're young so at the time you know it's uh i'm 30 ish and people are trusting me with that kind of money. Like it's an opportunity. You're grateful for it, but also you're having some moments with your heart. You know, you're like, oh god, oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I've been there too, man. It's yeah. Honestly, the worst jobs I try to forget because, like, yeah. usually they are. It's just a category of jobs. It's made by people that overpromise. They hire yeah. somebody that's very basic and doesn't have to do much CAD work involved. Like, so they, they don't know how to build complicated pieces and they're like, oh, but you're my go-to. So now I overpromised. I need this CAD person to like really function outside of their comfort zone in a way because they never have to reach, you know, for the stars in that sense. And so now they're building these pieces that they don't understand how they work. They don't understand the measurements, right? Because that's what CAD is, right? Like you're taking this art and you're turning it into this mathematical equation of, you know, spacing and distances. And if you don't know how this works and functions, like you can't do it. So, mm -hmm. and then, you know, you're sitting on a Saturday, it's 11 o'clock at night. You're trying to set stones, nothing fits. They overlap each other. They don't work. You know, piece falling apart these days is not such a big issue because really like, you know, you have a laser, you can fix some stuff if like the casting's bad, right? right? It's just like, you've got 500, you have 300 stones to set and the piece is just not at the caliber that, you know, like you can't even do the work that you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like you're sitting there and you're like, you know, I'm getting hired to make this piece like awesome. And like in the end, when I finish it, it should look so nice but it's just disappointment because you're like no matter the effort whether it's three times what i normally would do i can't even get there right you can't even attain it it's yeah. just it's like a support system right it's aggravating like, yeah you can only <laughs> do as good of a job as been handed to you so if the cad is done well the design concept is done well the stones by the diamond suppliers have been you know processed and calibrated and set right that support system allows you now to like perform absolutely but if it's not yeah. there then you're just making up and you're just trying to like get by mm -hmm. because like that's what you can do at that point right you're in emergency save this piece and get it done mode instead of like 
let's finish this. And like everybody here looks at it and goes, wow, everybody's excited. They're like, I partook in that. That's so cool. Yeah, absolutely. So because you use the Jira machine still to this day, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I do. Have you ever used a GRS and have you used one much? Yeah. So my first one was a Graversmith. the most common. Yeah. So Graversmith with the one, 901 handpiece was like my first machine. Oh, okay. Okay. And have you used the Pulse before? I have. So now I will be teaching once or twice a year at George Brown College in Toronto. Yeah. And they run the Pulse Gravers. So I get okay. to mess with them a little bit. I'd love to hear how you feel the three machines compare. So I will say that form setting and engraving, the GRS is very well-rounded. I really do like what it does. The only thing that I find a little lacking in it is the power on bezels. I find that sometimes people 3D print and make bezels and they're a little thick, especially white gold. Like, I don't know if in the UK you need to do palladium, but like you have nickel here and, you know, it's fairly hard sometimes to move. So I I find the GRS is is a little hard to control or muster out that power in that handpiece. Yeah. And this is kind of like where the Jura <clears throat> one really shines. The power it can output is is crazy to be honest, like yeah. <laughs> there's no reason to have that much. <laughs> I I tried one the other day and that's exactly my thoughts. I was like this thing is insane. Yeah, like it can move chunks of material like if you want it to, like it will do it. You know, the pulse graver, I think it's it's a great balance too. I think you if you set up your gravers properly and you have everything like in the right realm for engraving and for setting, it's fantastic. I wish that they made the handpiece heavier though. That's my one Interesting. I just find that it's a little t- the motion, you know, you get from a piston usually, right? It's like forward, it pushes it and then it comes back, right? Kind of like yeah. a gun in a way. It reloads. But that reloading action, which is very soft usually because it's against like a spring in a lot of them, like the GRS one, right? Yeah. It's a spring. If the handpiece isn't heavy enough, I feel like it hits backwards too much. Interesting. I don't know if that kind of makes sense. So I find like that there's, there's, this, this, there's this chattering that happens because there's like this motion that allows it to hit backwards and actually kind of like really move the piece. Hmm. Whereas the GRS one, when it hits forward and like comes back, it's great. It's fairly subtle. It's not, it doesn't shake a lot per se. The Lindsay style piece is fantastic. To be honest, I think it like, it moves metal extremely smoothly. Like for engraving, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know, I don't think there's a wrong answer really. It's about like the GRS is a great, if somebody wants an all purpose setting machine, it's a great start. Especially when yeah. you consider like the Graversmith and what it has to offer for its price point. Like it's a fantastic art. And then, yeah, as you develop and try the other ones, you know, you can make a, a good choice based on like, I guess, your personality or the kind of work you're doing. Yeah. Right. Because like you're only as good of a setter as the work that's supplied to you in a way. Right. If your setting is mostly pave work and largely like hip hop style jewelry. That's what you focus on because that's the work coming into the shop, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like I do a ton of engagement ring and big engagement. So like I'm pretty good at rings. You know what I mean? Yeah. I do some steel watches, but not much of. And I do, you know, some other things here and there. The hip hop style is fairly easy because like large flat surfaces. Oh, you know? dreamy. <laughs> yeah, dreamy. Right? Exactly. Like almost no way to make a mistake. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Oh man, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. If I ramble on too much, just let me know. No, no, no. It's brilliant. I like hearing it all. I like hearing it all. I want to hear though, what's your sort of your opinion on like the state of the industry with, you know, how, how CAD and printing and milling is advancing. And then also now sort of, you know, the stone setting machines, we're starting to see some more advanced ones come out. I don't know if you've seen any of them, but they're getting pretty tech now. So I'm just curious how you feel that works with, you know, and with your place within it as well, I guess. So for the setting machines, I haven't seen the most advanced one. I have seen some. Yep. And I have seen the ones that kind of roll over stuff to like channel setting, especially for round stones. Like I've seen that stuff like in New York City. Oh, they're way more advanced now. Yeah, yeah, no. I've I've seen like drill, burr, place stone, cutting. Yeah, so I have heard. I haven't seen the work itself. Right. Oh because no, I've not. I've not seen the work up close. I've just seen them working in action, like yeah, exactly. So short or something. When I was at a trade show three years ago or four years ago, somebody was showing me like you know milling and like splitting. The machine was doing it all. The person who programmed the machine definitely hasn't set before, because the truth is, is even though like the stones were straight, you know the splitting wasn't perfectly. You split yeah. and like you know sometimes part of the metal wanders a little more than the other, right? And it could be just like, it's a casting Absolutely. thing, you know, or maybe it wasn't annealed properly. And so like a section is just like a little softer than the other. Like there's that human-esque element that allows like you and me to correct because we see it. We see it happening and we're mm-hmm. like, oh, I've got to adjust something very slightly, right? And you could tell that the machine wasn't doing it. Like those splits were coming through and they were just like a little lopsided, you know? You're just like, well, it's robotic, right? It's just like it pushes, it presses, it gets down to this depth, and then it's done. And I don't recall if I saw that the machine was beating anything really well at that time, like when I was Mm -hmm. checking it with a loop. But four years is a really long time for technology. So like, if has it gotten like super a lot better? Like there's a chance. The reality is, is that if there are very basic things that are being done very well, the truth is, is that like our place is that we will eventually buy a machine for that stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. Like if our business is stone setting, I just don't see how in a couple of years when it becomes more affordable and it comes common practice, like how if that's not something that you do every single day, like why you wouldn't buy one. Interesting. So you're thinking like rather than even like fighting back or anything like that, you would almost intend to be sort of an early adopter. Or at least an adopter. So this is, how do I put it? It's like a good example. So, you know, the Roman Empire back in the day was like so influential in its victory, specifically because the technology of that day was roads. It seems so crazy, right? When you're like, you'd consider that technology, but you think about it and you're like, the reason they could get from one place to another so quickly and like win is because they were using roads to help them move faster. Whether you think of like something as back in the day, like old as that, or like this technology now, you know, 10 years from now on, you're just going to be like, why am I fighting, you know, that, right? The best I can do is go, I've been setting for 10 years or whatever it is. I have so much experience on stuff. I see ways stuff gets done. Like, you know, all these little things I can use that that skill and knowledge and take this machine that is being programmed by people that haven't done this and start influencing Mm -hmm. its decisions to do stuff more like I would. 
except to a better position because, you know, you have a machine that is very controlled, right? Hmm. I don't know if that, that makes sense, but like to me, it's like- No, no, the, it's, the, it's just a very interesting thought. No. The robot is making decisions based off of somebody's programming. The best you could do is take that programming and try to influence its behavior a little bit because there's certain things you do for a certain reason that when you, you know, program a milled ring to get cut and set, like you're making a decision, but why are you making that decision? You know, is here. Mm-hmm. Like that coding, is it in there? So there's a way I think to eventually it'll get to a point where it's like the best setting work will start getting to get done. Like when people start bridging that gap, really not trying to separate Interesting. It. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Oh, cool. I'll be curious to hear people's thoughts on that because I hadn't really thought of it from that point of view either, but you make a very good argument. I mean, think about how many things are built by people that don't actually do the thing, right? Yeah. So they're like, hey, like I want to make this leap in technology, but oh, have you done it? Oh, I've tinkered, but like I've never really done it, you know? So like think how cool it would be if you could take, uh, you know, one of those suits that they do the CGI stuff with and you could hold a tool. And you can program a robot, for instance, let's say, to read the motion of your wrist and fingers hmm. and the motion of like what this tool is doing as you're pushing. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's just like starting to copy that. Like, you know, like you're like, the oh man. Like, there for sure. Yeah. Like, damn, that's, that's kind of crazy if you think about it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I'm going to roll into some of my final questions here. That was good though. I like where you're going with that. What do you wish someone had told you when you were first starting out? A loaded question, I will say. (laughs) The reality is, is that, you know, one, you should always remember ethics are about what people do when shit goes badly, not how you perceive them when everything's fine. Because it's very easy to pretend to have ethics when everything's fine, right? Like, oh, hey, you know, they're so kind or they're so nice. It's like, yeah, because everything's good. (laughs) But you really learn like what ethics is and like who has those morals when stuff isn't going well, right? You know, you're working on a piece, it's super expensive. Yes, you're going to lose some money. But the reality is, is that from an ethical standpoint, like you should remake it. You know, a client has trusted you with a lot of money. It's your job to go, hey, it's not working out the way I intended because, you know, casting went badly, this and this and this. I could sit here and as a professional, I could fix it to like where you wouldn't tell that I could. But my job as a professional is also to make sure that I, you know, respect your money. Right. So like that ethics part is like, don't expect people to sit at those same standards because they do not. You know, it's like part of being an adult, I guess. You're just like, you know, everybody's got their levels and you just got to remember that, you know, you're at yours. And maybe you'll meet some really awesome people that are above yours. And you're like genuinely always like, wow, holy, like that's awesome. Yeah. But more so than not, you'll be disappointed by, you know, what really happens and goes on sometimes. I think that's like a really one. And two, honestly, I wish that schools or something had like a business course. Mm -hmm. Because I really think that learning how to manage a business, because it's not just about the numbers. Like a lot of people get, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I get caught up in like, oh, I'm making this business happen. You know, what are the numbers? What are my costs? What's my profit ratio? Like all that kind of stuff. Like I understand from one sense, like it's super important, but I think another standard would be to understand like 
how actually in the real world business transactions happen. How do conversations about business and just learning how to maneuver the waters when there's a lot of sharks, like I think would be really good for people to. Now this is right? specifically because within the jewelry industry you're speaking. From my experience, yes. Yeah. Right. But the truth is, is that that advice would not be hand in hand just for jewelry. I don't think. No, no. It would, it it's just that the thing is like, I don't yeah. have. It would have been good for you. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Good. Like for me, you. it'd be if people, you know. Truth is, is that if you get uh, somebody to give you advice in the jewelry business, they don't want to because, you know, you could take their business. Yeah. Right. Because the industry is really relationship based. Yeah, absolutely. Which So I understand it, people's reservations on that. I totally understand. But the reality is, is that, you know, if you had somebody to kind of mentor you on that front, it'd be very helping to know, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, that resonates with me quite well because I'm first generation in this business as well. And it's been a tough road, but it's uh, been tough. Yeah. Like I don't doubt it, you know, for MC, I'm sure it, you know, there's ups and downs for me. There was ups and downs just like for you. Yeah. It's like to really understand how people operate and just like people being truthful about the stuff that happens. Right. I think that a lot of people, somebody doesn't pay their bill or, you know, something happens. People generally try to find that like, Hey, I'd rather not talk about it because I will be viewed at as less than, whereas, hey, this experience might help somebody in a situation where they land themselves in similar, and they will just have a better answer for that situation because they were just made aware that it's a possibility, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's like super important, right? Brilliant, man. Yeah. I just got the one last question here, yeah. but I think it's kind of appropriate given both of our backgrounds. I feel like more now than ever, maybe it's social media, maybe it's CAD sort of making it easier to enter this trade and various other things like the CAD mm -hmm. making it easier. I see a lot more even now than when I first got in. First generation guys are, you know, yet to be, mm -hmm. but people who want to get in and are first generation and they have no idea where to start. What would you tell somebody like that who asks you, you know, like, how do I start in this? How do I get into micro settings? So... I think generally I would just start with, you know, figure out what you really like because you can't do everything. Generally, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there's a lot of like people that are very well-rounded, but the reality is, is that to be really good in this trade nowadays, there's so much stuff you need to know. Even if you want to be a good cat person, the extent of knowledge you need, like you need to spend three to five years all day, every day running a business as only CAD. Like if you really want to get to that position, you know, it's the yeah. same thing as setting. Like you want to be a good setter, like three to five years of setting every day, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever yep. done the math, but like, I'm like, there were years where it's like 28 to 33,000 stones a year. That's what I'm setting. When mm -hmm. you start thinking about it, you're like, that's a lot never, of stones. I've done the math. Yeah, I like, I did <laughs> the math and I'm like, you know, you got some center stones in there. You got some pave work. But when you think about like, you look at your business and you go, okay, like how do I break that up percentage wise and price per stone? And then you start doing some math. You're like, you know, we're almost getting to an average of like 30,000 stones a year. You know, that's a substantial amount of stones, right? For sure. So if I would tell anybody, it's like, I don't know if in the UK it's a thing, but because I teach it at George Brown, you know, a couple of hundred bucks lets you take a course in introduction to micro with me at George Brown, for instance. Very non-expensive way to figure out if this is for you. 
right? Because it's <laughs> yeah. a, you love it or you hate it. I don't think there's an in-between. There's like, I can sit under the microscope and solve puzzles all day. And I really like doing this. Or it's like, a, honestly, I'm just too stressed out all the time. I just don't want to touch it, right? So I would just go figure out a way if there's a way that you can tinker at it, or at least like give it a shot for a couple of days to like see if there's an inexpensive way to try it, whether it's somebody else's office or, you know, take a partial course somewhere or, you know, do some sort of introduction if you really can. And if you yeah. do sit down and you're like, you know, because the barrier of entry to setting is super large now, right? If you think about it. Well, it's for micro setting. Absolutely. Yeah. Seven years ago, when I got walked in to be an apprentice, it's like, hey, take 300 bucks, buy some shellac sticks, buy some woods, here's some burrs, a drill bits in here. You get a quick change handpiece, and like, you know, $400 later, you're like, there you go. You're a setter. You're starting. <laughs> now you're like, I need $10,000, right? You're like this, a proper bench, a microscope, you, you know, the engraving machine, the compressor, right? Like it's a whole. It's massive. It's a massive entry. You're not just going to spend a thousand bucks. You're literally going to throw $10,000 and be like, I'm going to find out if I'm good or not, right? That would be my suggestion. If like. If you can tinker with it just a little bit with somebody that knows what they're doing and just get a sense of like, if you like it and if you don't like it, or I don't know about you, but like when I first started, almost everything was really stressful. (laughs) (laughs) I would have like panic attacks at night sometimes to thinking about like, you know, I'm setting this like 110 carat tanzanite and I'm just sitting there. I'm like, oh, this is what I got to do tomorrow. You know, it's like, (laughs) like you can't go to bed. Because that's all you're thinking about. Your brain's just trying to solve this problem of how I'm going to get it in and like, what are the steps I'm going to take, you know? So uh, I don't know about how goldsmithing feels or about some of the other jobs with CAD. You know, you take it, you throw it out, you start again if it doesn't feel nice or doesn't work out for you. Yep. But like for setting, right, the margin for error is super small to break stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Right. So I think that setting I find is like a really weird balance between this confidence ego thing and just being able to take like a step back. So like you don't break any, right? Like you're like, I have a plan. I made it. I'm confident that I can now push and I'm going to take these $10 pliers and I push over this (laughs) $10,000 stone and it's going to work out because I'm amazing. (laughs) Just pull back a little bit enough that you're like, I know it's going to work because I've done my mental checklist. You know, I've thing, I'm not going to pinch the the girdle. I'm going to thing. It comes over that facet on the crown. Like it comes over (laughs) it. I'm not going to have it. That's the way I would kind of go about talking to people about it. No, I love that, man. Because it's super exciting. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Could talk all day here, but I think I will wrap it up there, man. I don't want to be taking up people's entire stays with this, but I really enjoyed this, man. It's been good. Thanks a lot for joining me. No, thank you very much for having me, man. Like, if you ask Anna, I could talk all day. So it's like a problem I have. (laughs) All right. Well, where can people find you on the internet? So Atelier Daco is my Instagram, A-T-E-L-I-E-R Daco. Website is atelierdaco.com. And uh, you could always reach me there via DM if you ever have any questions or have any questions about tools or anything like that. I can, you know, send you in the right places depending where you live for to sure you buy that stuff. Brilliant, man. Well, all that will be in the show notes for you guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Daco, we'll chat soon, man. All right, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. 
All right, guys. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you did like it, or even if you didn't, please help us out by giving us a rating and a review. It'll really help the show grow. Pat's info is all going to be in the show notes below. I absolutely encourage you to check him out. You're also going to find my info and where you can reach me. And until next time, keep setting those diamonds.